Welcome, welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. And uh, we know it's March because finally it's actually light as we're starting Narrative Medicine Rounds, which uh, as Elizabeth over here just said to me is uh, quite refreshing. Um, we've been starting Narrative Medicine Rounds in the dark lately and uh, hopefully we'll be having more sunlight um, as our rounds progress in the next month. Um, my name is Sayantani Dasgupta, for those of you I don't know. I um, am one of the core faculty members in the program in narrative medicine and also a pediatrician by training. Um, and on behalf of all of my colleagues in the narrative medicine program, uh, Rita Sharon, our director who uh, couldn't be here today, she's away being a, a guest professor in Arkansas. Um, Morris Beagle, Craig Irvine, Pat Stanley, who is right there. Uh, Marsha Hurst, who's the director of our master's program, who I don't think is here yet, but should be stepping um, uh, in here in a few moments. Um, and I'll probably point her out at the end of rounds if anyone is interested in speaking to her more in depth about our upcoming masters in narrative medicine. I will point her out. Uh, but our other colleagues are Eric Marcus and finally our own Nellie Hunter. Um, and so on behalf of all of us, welcome, welcome to March Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, as always, I am so delighted to see a face that, you know, faces that are familiar and come, you know, religiously each and every month to rounds and really make our core you know, the heart of our core community. And as it is every month, I'm really just um, delighted to be meeting so many new people who find out about Rounds, hear about it, read something about our program in the paper and decide to come. Um, and hopefully, um, you'll continue to come back and back and um, be a part of this community of clinicians and scholars and students and readers um, who make up what narrative medicine is. Um, as you all know, our monthly narrative medicine rounds um, are a place where artists and scholars working at the intersees of story, of narrative, and healthcare can come and read to us, present their work, engage in discussion with us. Um, but as well, and you know, I kind of gesture to this every month because I think it's, it's extremely important, as well, um, narrative medicine rounds are a place that connections are made between us and they continue to be made um, in terms of work together and scholarly activity together and friendships and projects and grant writing. So a lot of kind of fertile um, activity takes place in this room and um, I'm very grateful for that. Um, I want to thank our friend Joe Catuso and his uh, colleagues at MBS Vox. Anybody from MBS here tonight? No. Um, and Common Health, who um, help us make Narrative Medicine Rounds possible um, every month. Um, and finally, before I take great pleasure in introducing tonight's speaker, I want to again announce um, our forthcoming Masters of Science in Narrative Medicine. Um, as you've probably heard me go on every month, we are ecstatic that fall of 09 is the beginning of the Masters of Science in Narrative Medicine at Columbia University. We've already had a wonderful information session at which we thought about, I don't know, 30, 40 people would attend. And um, that magnificent grand kind of entrance of Lowe Library was packed 
with what, over 200? Over 200 people. And uh, now on April 21st, is that correct, Pat, the 21st, we will be having a second information session. So please um, go to our website, www.narrativemedicine.org for more information on that. Um, there will also be flyers in the back of the room, um, both on our master's program and on upcoming round speakers in the next month, um, as well as sign-in sheets. So if you, if you want to you know, know who our round speakers are every month and have us send you an email, you know, put your name and email on the list. If you want to know more about the master's program, there's another list that will be in the back um, as rounds end to put your name on. Um, so now, um, oh, and one more. One more thing, and this uh, microphone reminds me. Um, we're really delighted to now be offering um, audio podcasts of all of our rounds since January of 09. So Michael Greenberg, who spoke in January, and, and I'm, the microphone wasn't pointed towards me, um, and Perry Class, who spoke in February, both of their uh, talks are now available as audio podcasts. Um, to go home and listen to, share with your colleagues, and all you know rounds uh, that are upcoming will also be available as audio podcasts. Um, so now I do actually get to um, introduce our evening speaker, who is uh, the chief of the narrative medicine writing faculty, um, Nellie Herman, who is going to be reading tonight from her really gorgeous new novel, um, The Cure for Grief which um, you know, has been hailed by many wonderful reviews um, that you can read uh, on our site and her site um, for its lyricism, for its honest and brave simplicity, um, for its ability to tackle really extremely difficult subjects, um, loss and repressed memory, um, mental and physical illness, and how to go on, how to grow up um, when faced with really incomprehensible family tragedy. Um, Ruby Bronstein, who's Nellie's protagonist in her novel, um, must face illness and death really squarely in the face at a very young age, and yet somehow, or some way, live, right? She has to figure out how to, as her father, who's a Holocaust survivor, urges her how to choose life, right? Um, but I think that you know, to me, and here Nellie's going to have to forgive me for uh, reading your really amazing, um, tender novel through uh, narrative medicine sort of eye, um, because I think that, here I'll suggest that, you know, Ruby is very particularly and uniquely herself, but in a way, I think she's akin to all of us who stand witness day in and day out to suffering. Um, be it as an oral historian, or a journalist, or a healthcare provider, or a family caregiver, or a patient ourselves. Um, because, you know, I hesitate to suggest, you know, Ruby helps us face our own suffering as witnesses, right? What do witnesses suffer by witnessing suffering? So she helps us face our own suffering kind of squarely in the face, right? And at least for this reader, she helped me to ask myself, you know, how do we assimilate the unassimilatable, right? How do we go on living when life itself seems impossible, right? How do we, all of us, choose life? And so it's with great, great pleasure that I give you 
Nellie Herman. Thank you, Sayantani. Uh, I feel like I should just throw out all my pages of introduction that I was going to make because you sort of just said it all for me. Okay. Hello? Is that better? Better? Uh, okay. Just shout out if you can't hear me. Um, okay. So thank you for coming. I'm really very honored to be here and to be part of the narrative medicine program in general. Um, I feel frequent sense of amazement that I found this work in this program and that I get to be a part of it. Um, I'm often asked by people who are not in this world what narrative medicine is and why and how I want to be a part of it or am a part of it because I have no medical background whatsoever and I'm here working in a hospital. And I always feel like the best way for me to explain is just to give people my book and have them read my book, um, and I do a better job in the book than I think I could ever do just speaking. So forgive me if I sort of ramble around. Um, but I wanted to talk a little, every time I come to these rounds, everybody that I've seen do them is always very eloquent at talking sort of off the cuff, and I am had to write some stuff down, so forgive me for that. Um, and I'm gonna basically talk a little bit about myself and the backstory of the book and how I came to write it, and then um, I will, I promise, read and then um, take some questions from you and hopefully clarify things that I forget to say. So, okay, so some background on me. Um, I, as Sayantani very wisely points out, the book is a lot about witnessing because I feel that that has been my main role in this world so far in my life. I've been very fortunate in my own health, but I've been touched by illness from a very young age myself. Um, when I was 10, my oldest brother of three suffered a severe mental break. Um, he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And then um, when I was, over the year that I turned 15, I lost my dad and my youngest brother to brain tumors. Um, <coughs> My dad is, was a Holocaust survivor, and uh, he had very few memories of his childhood in the concentration camp, which I was a phenomenon that I was fairly obsessed with when I was a kid, and I'm pretty sure was a large part of the reason why I was a writer from a very early age, is just sense of there being these untold stories that I couldn't gain access to, even if I tried. Um, so I witnessed a lot in my first 16 years of life that I didn't know how to handle and just sort of pushed down and decided that I would save for later. And I sort of always knew that I would write about the story, but I never knew how to. I mean, I was a young person, so I sort of, for years, I was writing around the story and I was always trying to write it, but I, I never knew how. So I'd write fiction about it, I'd write nonfiction about it, and nothing ever really quite felt right. And I. Um, it was a very private endeavor for me then to write about it. Um, and that sort of went hand in hand with the way that I dealt with my grief in those years, which was sort of to not acknowledge it and try my best to remain uh, 
teenager, whatever that means. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't let it, you know, get in my way. I wouldn't let it derail me. I wanted to have as normal a, a youth as I could, even though that was sort of ridiculous. I realize now. Um, Still can't hear me. She can hear me. Okay. Um, so anyway, so my anger about what had happened manifested in this belief that nobody could understand what I had gone through, and therefore there was absolutely no point in talking about it. So I never talked about it, and I just wrote about it all the time. But nobody really ever saw what I was writing. But writing was a real comfort for me, and it always was, um, and it was a way for me to speak without speaking. It was a way for me to get out some of what was going on inside of me in a safe way, in a way that I could handle and I could look at and structure and put aside. And um, I, let's see. So, okay, so in graduate school, then jumping many years, I took a seminar on the topic of nonfiction and fiction, sort of this, you know, where, where does the border lie class. And um, we did an exercise in that class where we were asked to write a memory, about a memory from um, both as fiction and as nonfiction. Um, and I wrote about the day that my oldest brother came home from college at the beginning of his illness. And I found a noticeable freedom in writing about the event as fiction. Uh, suddenly it just sort of clicked into place and I felt far more able to write about it. Um, when I tried to write it as my own memory, I felt tied down by what I didn't remember and by all the complicated emotions that I still felt but couldn't quite articulate. But when I wrote it as fiction, I felt liberated by the prospect of filling in the gaps um, with invented details and creating stories who I could give the story over to and not worry as much that I was being faithful to what happened. Um, and when I was writing this exercise is when I found Ruby, my main character. Um, and then this exercise is actually now pretty much verbatim in the book. Um, and I actually, I don't know, I hope this will be interesting to you because I, I thought it was really interesting. I went back into my files when I was preparing for this and I found the exercise and I thought I might share it with you just as sort of a little intellectual exercise before I read the bigger piece I'm gonna read. But so this is the, this is the nonfiction version that I wrote then. This is 2004 that I wrote this. I don't remember what I did the day my oldest brother came home from college crazy, but I know that after that day, my whole life was different. I don't remember the bus ride to school, if the quadruplets from up the street were particularly rowdy, if we were on time for homeroom. I don't remember what we were learning in school, if maybe that was when we were doing the Egyptian timelines, or maybe we had sex ed that day, if we had a spelling bee that day or not. I don't remember if Michael Safran talked to me that day, though I'm pretty sure I wanted him to. I don't remember what we had for lunch, though I imagine it was pizza, the rectangle kind, with the option of chocolate milk. That day, up until the moment that my father approached where I was waiting for the bus after school, was just like any other day before then, a happy, normal fifth grade day, and therefore indistinct. It is interesting, then, how vividly I can remember my father that day, in his suit, a bit rumpled from the office, approaching the line where I was waiting for the bus. I don't remember what he said as he held out his hand to me, or whether his face really did look grave, as I imagine it did, or if he made a real effort to hold back his sadness and fear, which I imagine he must have. But I remember the confusion I felt, 
my father suddenly materializing at my school, a territory he almost never frequented. Did he just want to see me? Did he just get home from work early today? I remember taking his hand and leaving the line. If I had to pinpoint the moment that my life changed, it would be that moment, taking my father's hand and walking away from that line of children. After that moment, I was not like those kids anymore. Suddenly, I was a kid with a secret. I was a kid with a family coping with tragedy. I was a kid with an older brother who was out of his mind. One moment, I am waiting for the bus with my friends. The next, I take my father's hand and walk with him to his car, and everything is different. It was the beginning of many moments like this, something a little out of the ordinary, signaling that something was wrong. And I grew to understand these signals so that I would expect tragedy more often than I would expect spontaneity. But that moment, my father approaching in his suit, holding out his hand, will always be the image to me that most signifies when my life changed. So that's the nonfiction exercise. And then I'm going to read the part that's in the book, which is obviously a little longer and more developed than the exercise was when I wrote it, but it's actually quite similar. So this is the opening of the second chapter in the book. The day her oldest brother Abe came home from college crazy, Ruby, who had just turned 10, won a spelling bee. The entire fifth grade class gathered in the auditorium that morning, and Ruby stayed on stage the whole time, as one by one her classmates misspelled words, and Mrs. Henderson, the school secretary, rang the tiny handheld bell to signal that they were eliminated from the competition. Ruby's final word, the one that won her the trophy she held as she made her way out to the waiting school bus that afternoon, just before her father walked up the long drive toward her, had been profligate, a word she had never heard before, but somehow managed to spell. Profligate, the word came apart nicely, Ruby's favorite kind of word. It divided itself in front of her so she could see the letters as she spelled them out. Everything went smoothly that morning, the words floating before her, cooperating, dividing themselves into neat little sections she could easily read. Mrs. Butterworth, her teacher, sitting at the front table next to Mrs. Henderson, had a smile on her face whenever Ruby stood before the microphone. Mrs. Butterworth would say the word, and Ruby would repeat it back, and she would look at Mrs. Butterworth, and Mrs. Butterworth would smile and nod, and the word would float up before Ruby and divide itself. It was almost effortless. After the spelling bee, the day was a blur, the trophy burning a hole in the floor next to Ruby's backpack. Avi Meltrin, who Ruby's mother insisted had a crush on her, passed her a note during math class that said, hey champ, how do you spell nerd? And for a second, <laughs> she was embarrassed, but then she remembered the last time Avi had made fun of her, when she had worn her brand new brown loafers with the white soles to school, and he'd hissed that they were boy shoes and then how he called her up a few days after making her cry to ask her to go with him to a dance at school. And she touched the trophy with her foot and crumpled the note up and pushed it back to him. She couldn't wait to surprise her parents with the trophy. She kept imagining their faces, their mouths like O's, her dad saying, my buttons are popping, her mother making Swedish meatballs for dinner to celebrate. They were the ones who would understand. When she thought of the spelling bee, it felt like a dream, and she couldn't quite believe it had been her up there conquering those words as if she were on horseback, swatting them out of the air with a long sword. But when the day was over and Ruby was finally making her way to the school bus, walking in the line of kids down the sidewalk outside the front doors of the school, cradling the trophy in her arm like she did her favorite stuffed animal, Bear, whom she had won at a fair, her father was coming up the walk toward her, 
and the expression on his face was not curious or proud, but grave, and he barely looked at the trophy as he took her hand and led her away. Her friends called out to her, bye Ruby, and she was walking away from them with her father in his suit, but this wasn't the way she had pictured it, not at all, and she couldn't remember the last time her father had picked her up from school. Had he ever? No, she was pretty sure he never had, and yet here he was, the back of his suit jacket a bit rumpled. And it was disorienting, having her father there on a Thursday afternoon. It made her somehow feel it was a Sunday, and she was leaving Hebrew school, and there would be bagels in the car and chive cream cheese, her favorite. But no, it was a Thursday, and so why was her father here? She walked with him toward the car. They reached the car, and she got in the passenger side. The trophy sat on her lap and came up to her chin, and she looked at it while her father settled into his seat, and she remembered the word, profligate, and wondered what it meant. And she wondered why her father hadn't mentioned the trophy yet. How could he not notice the trophy? Her father had his hands on the wheel, and he put the keys in the ignition, but he didn't start the car. He said, honey, I'm picking you up from school today because something's happened. He looked at her, and she saw his eyes dart to the trophy, but then he looked back at her face and kept his eyes there. I just wanted you to know about it before you got home. I just wanted to warn you, he said. Abe's home. He just came home. His friends drove him here. He's not feeling very well in his head. He's not feeling well in his head. He paused, and Ruby looked at his suit collar, the skin bulging loosely over it, the skin there so smooth and hairless, unlike the skin on his cheeks, which he would rub against Ruby's face to make her squeal. His face was very serious. There was no trace of laughter, but he wasn't angry, and this combination was rare. His bushy eyebrows shadowed his eyes. He's okay, her father said. He's all right, but he's sick. He might act strange. You might notice that he's different, but you don't have to be afraid. I just wanted you to know. Her father stopped talking and looked at Ruby. She didn't know what to say. Whatever was going on, it was serious. That much was clear. She remembered the last time she'd seen Abraham a few weeks ago when he was home for his spring break, <coughs> crying at the dining room table. She remembered hearing him say, I don't want to go back, the words drifting up the stairs as she made her way down. She remembered his shoulders slumped. She remembered her mother standing behind him and rubbing his back. She remembered him wiping his eyes when he saw Ruby come into the room, trying to smile at her. She had never seen any of her brothers cry like that. She had only seen them cry in anger, usually at their father, but never like that, at the dining room table, shoulders heaving, head in hands. <coughs> was this related to what was wrong with him now? Her father gestured at the trophy. What's that for? I won the spelling bee. But this wasn't how she pictured telling him, in his car, with him in his suit, his face so serious, not at all. The spelling bee seemed far away now, the trophy heavy on her legs. Abe was, coming, Abe was home from college, he was sick in his head, and she shouldn't be afraid, but then why was her father there, sitting with her in the car without turning the key? She looked at her father, and he took her hand. Oh, Ruby, he said, that's so great, I'm so proud of you. He gave her hand a squeeze, then reached for the key and started the car. No music began when the car turned on. No book on tape voice in mid-sentence. Just the two of them and the sound of the car's engine. Her father took a deep breath and let it out before they moved. Okay, so that was the fiction version. Um, and it's really interesting for me to look back at that nonfiction exercise and see in it the reasons why I ultimately decided that I couldn't and didn't want to write a memoir. Um, I was already hung up with the things that I didn't 
remember. And I, was, I remember feeling like I was already lying in that piece when I declared that there was a moment to point to when my life changed, that, that I actually didn't really feel that. Um, writing fiction allowed me not to worry about lying. It also allowed me to give over the story to other people, which then freed me from it in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. When I think of my family's story now, I see Ruby's version of it as well as the version that happened to me. So writing the book allowed me to preserve my own more private version, and it also allowed me to release the rights of the story and to get it out of inside of me. Um, there is also something crucial about giving a shape to the story. We can talk about all of this after I read, but um, a shape that it couldn't have in real life. Um, from the beginning, I was sure that I wanted the ending of the book to be positive and hopeful, and that I wanted Ruby to get through it and be okay. Um, and so in shaping the end and, and deciding what I wanted for her and what I could see for her, I sort of released my own ending in a way. And I couldn't see my own ending, but I could see it for her, which was liberating. Um, also, the act of writing the story and sharing it with others, giving it a shape and a life that is beyond me has been completely transformative for me. Part of the change has come from removing it from inside me, thereby freeing up room for other things. And some of it has come by sharing it with the world and you know, standing up here and talking about this, which I never imagined I ever would have done. Um, and there is just a sense of hope in the very act of reaching out and allowing others to read your story and talking about it. So having experienced this change in my own life, um, I believe all the more fervently in the transformative power of reading and writing, which is what we do here in the narrative medicine program. So sort of coming around full circle to why I'm here and what I so anyway, enough talking. Um, I'm going to read um, a little longer section. This this is a part of the book that I've never gotten to read before because I always find it, I always feel like it's too too hard to read to a gener generic audience. So I, so I will read it to you guys because it takes place in a hospital and we are in a hospital as right now. So um, what do I have to tell you? Uh, so in this section, she's a junior, in, she's about to go to the junior prom with a friend of hers who she hadn't yet told um, about her youngest brother, Nathan, who is in a coma um, from the brain tumor. Um, she, Jill is the name of her best girlfriend and she's the only person that Ruby has told. Um, Aaron is the name of her middle brother and I think that's all you need to know. The father, it's mentioned, is, is a Holocaust survivor, but I think I told you that. Okay. The Monday before the junior prom was Nathan's sixth day in the coma. Aaron came home on Sunday, but Abe was too out of it to process what was happening. When their mother asked him if he wanted to go with them to see Nathan, Abe waved her away with his hand. I'll see him when he gets home, he said decisively, loudly, a big smile on his lips. Ruby was relieved. For five days, Ruby had gone with her mother and then with Aaron to sit next to Nathan's hospital bed, where he was attached to a respirator that breathed for him. Uh, I should maybe say Nathan is 21 and Ruby is, well, 16. 
The breaths it gave him were deep and even, spread unnaturally across long seconds. Ruby watched his chest rise and fall, filling and then releasing the air. She waited, holding her own breath until his chest rose again. She tried to align her breathing with his, deep breath in, out, then pause, and felt the unpredictability of the respirator. How did it choose when to release the air? Why should it get to choose? There was something evil in the way it staggered its gift. Her brother lay peaceful and calm, and the machine injected air into his body. It was violent, a violent, life-sustaining gift. The respirator fired, deep breath in. Nathan's chest rose, wait. His chest fell, there was the sound of a deep sigh. Wait, wait. Then a shot of air was fired. There was a noise like a snore, and his chest rose again. His body looked the same to her every day, though she was aware of the expectation just before she entered his curtained area that it would somehow be different. Each time Ruby arrived at the waiting room, she pressed the button on the side of the locked door to the intensive care unit, and a disembodied voice said, name, and she leaned into the speaker and said, Ruby Bronstein, and then the door buzzed, and she pushed through and into the unit, which was a long hallway with a series of curtains hanging in front of beds on which lay a series of people close to death. She walked down the hall and tried not to look to her left, where the thin curtains were floating, airy and white like ghosts, thin membranes that were all that so separated her from strange dying bodies. But of course she looked, of course she had to look, and behind the curtains she saw lumps in the end of a tucked in bed, the outlines of a person's feet, a hand holding a remote control, or sometimes a face, thin and drawn, with its eyes closed. The hallway was long and evenly lit, the cubicles of sickness one after another, the desk for all the nurses, and the constant smell of sharp antiseptic, and the lotion that they rubbed on the immovable bodies thick in the air. Every day, some of the cubicles held healthy people. People were gathered around a bed. People were holding each other's hands, or talking loudly, or wearing birthday hats. And in the middle of them, as Ruby walked by, there was a pair of feet lying still at the end of the mattress, attached to a body that was dying. She noted these things. This hallway was alive inside of her now. And though she tried not to notice the other families, the other tragedies, the other hearts full of worry and hope, she knew she was just one of them, one of the constant stream of humans who passed through this hallway as on a conveyor belt, passing through with love and fear filling their chests. But Nathan was here, and so as much as she was like the others, she knew she had much that they didn't have. Every day as she made the trip, as the feeling in her chest mounted in anticipation, for in just one second, she would see her brother. She would be near her brother in his hospital bed. It would still be him. Nathan was at the end of the hall, silent Nathan with a tube in his throat. There was the hope, of course, that one of these days his eyes would be open, that she would arrive to find him sitting up and smiling. But more subtle than that was the hope of a twitch, an upturn of the mouth, a wink of a closed eye, a quick squeeze of her hand. She sat with his body and watched it for signs of life. It was warm, and sometimes that was enough. Jill was the only person Ruby had told. In the moments when she thought the words might come, they didn't. The illusion remained. Nothing was changing. This could not happen again. Another horrible thing was not happening. Not to Nathan, not to her. At school, she tried to banish images of Nathan from her brain. She carried her grief like a backpack she could remove. She was called to the blackboard in math class, and as she raised her arm, chalk in hand, she saw him. 
The board was glass, and Nathan was standing behind it, smiling, and she was raising her arm to him. She forced her hand over the blackboard, forced her eyes to see the board as dark and opaque, forced her brother back into his hospital bed and her mind back to math. She smiled at her friends and laughed and made jokes, and mostly it worked. She was distracted. She was a teenager, and her school books held facts, and the classroom walls had posters she could read over and over. Martin Luther King Jr., I Have a Dream, or Attitude, A Little Thing That Makes a Big Difference. She breathed deep and regular and tried not to think of Nathan, the way his tongue was dry and cracking next to the tube in his mouth. Tuesday afternoon when she arrived at Nathan's bed, Nathan's best friend Rob was there, sitting next to the bed and reading to him from Tuck Everlasting. Rob and Nathan had been captains of the wrestling team together at Featherton and now went to the same college. On his own, Rob was shy and restrained, serious, awkward with women, a hulk of a man with sunken eyes. But with Nathan, he was goofy and reckless, a naughty child. Ruby's mother told her the night after they found out about the tumor, while Nathan was on the phone with Rob in the living room, and Ruby and her mother were on the couch in front of the TV, that Nathan had told her he thought Rob was his soulmate. He said that, Ruby was surprised. Soulmate? Yeah, her mother nodded, looking at the television. Soulmate. Ruby remembered getting a ride to school once in Rob's car, a huge Chevy Suburban, during his and Nathan's last year at Featherton when she was in seventh grade. The two of them were chewing tobacco and spitting into a soda can that they passed to each other, laughing garrulous laughs, throwing their heads back and slapping the dashboard. Ruby sat silently in the back seat, hesitant as if she were witnessing the feeding ritual of lions. Rob stopped at all the green lights. Green light, oh shit, green light and went on the red ones, and the two of them roared. Hey, Ruby, Rob said now, when she came through the curtain. His eyes were tired. How are you? Okay, she said, coming around to the other side of Nathan's bed and putting her hands on the bed rail. When she saw what book he was reading to her brother, she felt a part of her chest open with affection. Why hadn't she thought of that book? It was the perfect book to read to someone you loved who needed to live. Nathan's body was between them. How are you? Okay the book. Ruby thought Rob looked very small in the chair next to the bed, smaller even than Nathan. How long had he been here, reading to his friend? That's a great book. Rob nodded, looking at Nathan. Where's your mom, he asked suddenly, as if she, he just realized she wasn't there. She's coming, she said. I think she's talking to the doctor. Rob nodded at Nathan. He's looking okay, don't you think? Ruby looked at her brother. His tongue was peeking out from the opposite side than it had been yesterday and it looked a little more moist. The respirator fired air, and his chest rose, I guess. Yeah, Rob sighed. He stood up and took Nathan's hand. Well, I guess I should be going. See you, buddy, he said to Nathan. You take care of yourself, okay? He released the hand reluctantly, laying it gently back down on the white cotton blanket, and gazed at it after he'd let it go, as if trying to memorize the image. If I don't see your mom, tell her I'll see her tomorrow. Okay, Ruby said. See you, Rob. She watched him leave, pushing the curtain to one side and stepping out into the hallway, and she noticed his Birkenstocks and khaki shorts, the roundness of his calves, the way his back curved from shoulder to shoulder beneath his t-shirt. He was so out of place here, in this hospital with knobs and tubes coming from the walls, white and sterile, the thin curtains hanging from the ceiling, the only sounds hushed and murmured or electronic, always so methodical and controlled. 
A body so young and so full of blood and muscles and strength did not belong here. She looked down at Nathan and thought of his body next to Rob's, the way they used to look side by side in their puffy jackets in the wintertime, so similarly built. She thought of the two of them in their wrestling uniforms, the straps long and reaching down to their stomachs, exposing their chests, the spandex shorts hugging their thighs. She'd always thought that wrestling uniforms were the strangest articles of clothing. Even the strongest of boys looked weak in them. She had to hold back laughter when she was around Nathan in his uniform, which of course made him keep it on as long as possible and try to interact with her as much as he could. She thought of Nathan on the wrestling mat. She had a sudden full image of the gym during a match, the deep smell of sweat in the air, the feel of the thin grooves of the metal bleacher on her thighs, the grunts of nails on the mat before her, their shoes squeaking against the rubber as they pushed against each other with the balls of their feet, their arms reaching and pushing each other's sweating skin, and then Nathan, his body pale, pulling his opponent's arm out from under him and flipping him onto his back. She saw the gym, she saw Nathan in his uniform, and she saw him after a match, emerging from the locker room with a smile, his hair wet and his shoes slung over his shoulder, their laces tied together with a knot. The room was hushed, save for the noise of the machines, the beep, beep, beep of Nathan's heart in a jagged green line on a screen, and the respirator pausing, waiting, and then firing. She was alone with Nathan, aware of the brevity of the moment, her mother somewhere close by. She watched his body for signs of movement. Were his muscles thinning? What happened to muscles if they no longer had to move limbs? She thought of her father, the way his body had thinned and dwindled, the way that by the end he didn't look like himself, and yet there was always something about him that was familiar. By the end, his body was so fragile they needed a machine to lift him into his wheelchair, which was specially padded so as not to harm him. Even his wheelchair could harm him then. His wheelchair, if not properly padded, could give him sores, could rot his skin, could tear him like a piece of paper. She'd never seen her father like this, though. In all the time he was dying, she never saw him unconscious. He'd never had machines to help him breathe. There was something so different about this. It was still Nathan, still fully Nathan there before her. No dramatic scars, no thinning. There was only the presence of the machines, only the curtain and the whiteness of those perpetually closed eyes. She resisted the urge to climb onto the bed and lay her body next to his. Did he know she was there? She wanted to speak to him, but what could she say? She wasn't sure he could hear her. She brought his hand up and touched it to her cheek. It was soft and warm, and she ran her thumb over the back of it. She wanted the hand to dissolve into her face. She wanted to possess the hand and its warmth. She wanted Nathan's hand to be something she could swallow and keep. She closed her eyes and pressed it to her. Hi, Nate, she said softly, pushing the hand against her skin. The hand did not respond. At the bottom of the bed, his feet peeked out. Nathan didn't like to sleep with his feet inside blankets. What can I say? I just don't like to feel confined. And on the first day he was in the hospital, Ruby had objected to his feet being tucked in. <coughs> it looked wrong to see him like that, his feet, those hidden lumps. She'd pulled, her, she'd pulled her mother's arm. They were standing by the foot of the bed together. The machines were making their noises. It was the first time Ruby had seen Nathan something was wrong, something besides this room and the tube in his mouth and the way he was silent and serious. And then it occurred to her, the feet, and she touched her mother's arm and said, Mom, his feet, his feet should be free. 
Her mother looked at the bottom of his bed, nodded, and said, you're right, and went out to tell the nurse. Now Nathan's feet were always free. Nathan's feet were free, and that meant that this was Nathan, that these were Nathan's feet. Ruby looked at them now, his toes, the light tufts of hair before the knuckles, the toenails square and pushing out against the sides of skin, the dots of black in the corners where the skin was calloused and hard, and recognized them, her brother's feet. The same feet that stepped next to hers on the grass up in Maine, tan and tough in the summertime. The same feet that Nathan loved to shove in her face while they watched TV to make her surrender the remote. How could a body be in so many different places, she thought, and always look the same? How could it carry its happy memories with it to its worst places? She lowered his hand to his side and moved to the end of the bed, reaching out to touch the hair on his left big toe. She looked to Nathan's face for a reaction, half expecting him to giggle as she ran her finger gently over his toe. He did not move. So far, it had just been her mother saying the words, brain tumor, cancer, coma, respirator, resuscitate, vegetable, life support. Her mother and the doctor she took Ruby and Aaron to see, a neurologist who spoke of Nathan's brain in technical terms, medulla oblongata, glioblastoma, and told them that the chance of anyone surviving this was nil. Unfortunately, the doctor said, his hands clasped together on his knees, his thin glasses pulled down low on his nose, I understand you already know this. This is the deadliest kind of tumor. It was strange in the doctor's office, so different from the sterile fluorescent hallways and waiting rooms of the hospital, where the furniture was all hard, flat wood jutting out from textured fabric cushions. One minute they were walking down the hall, away from the ICU and Nathan's beeping monitors, and the next they turned a corner and went through a door, and they were in a completely different sort of place, a large office filled with dark wood bookshelves, stacked high with medical textbooks, journals, and paperbacks, a desk piled with papers and a dim reading light, and three leather stiff-backed chairs, regal, as if they'd been taken from a British monarchic estate. Ruby was suspicious of it all. Somehow, it didn't seem right that a man should have an office like this just off that hallway out there, that bright conveyor belt for nurses in cotton smocks and squeaky shoes poking their heads into so many rooms of sickness and death. Ruby felt that she was in some sort of theater set, that this room had been orchestrated so families might have a comfortable place to receive bad news. And then there he was, this doctor, wearing a blue button-down shirt and khaki pants, a hospital ID clipped to his right breast pocket. Who was this guy, anyway? What did this guy really know? Where was his white coat? Where was his surgical mask, his paper cap to cover his hair? He was youngish, his hair was clipped short, his fingers were long and slim against his thighs. His wedding ring gleamed. How could this man know anything about Nathan, so far away down the hall? She'd never seen this man before, not near Nathan or anywhere else. Ruby wanted to be with Nathan, her brother, not here in this man's office. She longed for Nathan to be holding his warm hand. Her mother sat in the chair facing the doctor, then Ruby, then Aaron, in the big padded chairs, and the doctor said, I'm afraid he will not survive. You can keep him on life support as long as you want, but the fact is that he will not wake up. He paused, and then he said, for this kind of tumor, there simply are no survivors. Survivors, the word echoed in the room, bouncing off the wood furniture, the shaft of light on the desk. What did that word mean, anyway? 
Her father had been a survivor, but now he wasn't anymore. Could someone be a survivor and a no survivor at the same time? A survivor who was not a survivor. Did one survival affect another? If you survived something terrible but could succumb to something else, what did survival even mean? He will not survive. This was not a statement she thought her father, at least, would have believed. If her father had once survived terrorism, who was to say that Nathan couldn't survive this? Even if no one had ever woken up, even if it had never happened before, who had the authority to say it wouldn't happen now? There was always a first time for everything. Their parents had taught them this. Never say never, nothing is for certain, anything is possible, there was always a chance. Life is the highest good, always choose life. It was ingrained in them. Their father had worked and survived and worked and survived for them to know this. But there was her mother sitting next to the doctor and looking at Ruby and Aaron, and she was saying, Nathan didn't want to be a vegetable, kids, he told me so. Her mother was saying, I wanted you to meet with Dr. Glassstone so we could all decide together what to do. Her mother was looking at Ruby, and Ruby knew she wanted her to give in. She wanted her to hear no survivors and give in. She wanted her to believe in this statement just as she'd always believed in the possibility of its opposite. How could her mother believe this? How could she ignore the significance of that word? Where was the choice for life? Nathan's life, Nathan's life. Her mother was reaching over. Her mother was holding her hand, and Ruby didn't take it away, but she wanted to. She felt betrayed by her mother. The hand that was holding hers was a foreign hand. It was speaking a language she didn't understand. Ruby averted her eyes. She looked down at the carpet, blurring into a thousand blurry diamonds. And she didn't want to be in this room anymore. She wanted to be with Nathan. She wished it was Nathan's hand that was holding hers. Her mother was saying something that Ruby barely heard. Her mother was saying, Ruby, please, and something about two weeks, a compromise. And her mother was crying now, too and Ruby barely noticed that Aaron had hold of her other hand. Both her hands were being held now, but she felt as if a fist were gripping her throat. There was still a sliver of hope, like a bolt of bright lightning in her heart. She felt it, and she didn't want to give it up. Why should she have to give it up? And how was it possible that no one else felt it? She felt a long rope leading from her chest to Nathan's bed. I won't give up on you, she thought, reaching out to Nathan along the rope as her hands were held. The two hands holding hers were fists. They were shackles holding her to this chair. Her family had become wardens. They had signed a contract with this thin, imposter doctor, and she didn't understand why. How could they all be ready to let Nathan die? Nathan was alive, Nathan was warm, and this meant that there was light, that there was life to choose. But this doctor was shaking his head, and her mother was saying two more weeks, and then Aaron was standing and shaking the doctor's hand. Through her tears, Ruby stood and let her mother's hand fall and followed Aaron from the room. Nathan had no advocate but her, and she was as helpless as he was. Everyone wanted to let him die. Everyone wanted to let his warm body grow cold. I guess I'll stop there.
good. I'm, I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was unsure about sharing that, but I thought it might be good for Marsha. question that continues to constantly preoccupy me. I mean, it, when, you know, all these things about these memoirs that are coming out that are turning out to be not really true, and just the question of what it means to be true is so fascinating and bizarre to me. I mean, I, I'm not saying I advocate writing a memoir that's made up, but but there is some something very strange about the idea that some, you know, you're outraged if it's not, when we write a work of fiction, I feel like often it's just as true as a work of nonfiction. And I don't know, I guess it's just maybe we need a new word for that distinction or something. But. Definitely, I feel I was able to share my experience. I mean, even though my family went through this with me, I obviously had my very specific experience. And I mean, my mom, her like one thing that she has said more than once about this is like, someday I'll write my version. <laughs> like, <laughs> she, you know, I mean, she's been, everybody has been incredibly supportive but, but my mom definitely makes it clear to me that this was just my version and, and you know, it's not, and, and I agree. I mean, I, I mean I, but I think also she, and she has said that she feels very grateful for getting to see what my version was because in those years I was so quiet about the whole thing that, I, you know, she, and she was obviously, she's my mom, so she was just desperate to know what was going on with me you know, through writing this book, she gets to get some sense of it. But as for the details that I changed, I mean, some of that stuff, I, I did change a lot just by virtue of like, okay, I want her to be going to the junior prom, so she can't be a sophomore. I was a sophomore, so I had to like make, you know, make the illness longer and, you know, things like that. But, and sometimes I change it just for my own, like, that'd be fun to change that, you know. <laughs> 
that I know of. I maybe, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I guess you haven't finished the book at this point, so I don't want to give away the ending, but um, I, I, I struggled with how to make her survive. I wanted it to be, I didn't want to tie it up in sort of a neat bow because I have lived this story and I know it doesn't just end, you know, and so um, she she just basically ends, uh, the book ends in a place where, if I'm correct, and those of you that have read it might disagree, but uh, if it ends in a place where you see that she's going to be okay, and that, that's sort of it. I mean, I wanted to show that she understands that she has been lucky in a lot of ways, and that she's alive, and that that's a gift, and all these things that I feel about my own life that I wanted to give to her, but there's no like redemption. I mean, I guess there is kind of, I don't know. I, it's, that's a hard question to answer. I, I don't, that was, a, that was maybe the hardest thing for me was really figuring out like, how is this gonna end? How am I gonna, and I, in, in the first version of the book, she was much older at the end of the book. There was like a, a gap of 10 years and then you see her later and 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 then I, actually a friend of mine who's here had this revel revelatory comment for me was like why why does she why don't you just end it when she's young you don't need to skip all those years she can still be okay even if she's 20 so I did that and whereas for me it took a lot longer I don't think at 20 I was okay <laughs> took longer for me but for her No, I didn't, and so maybe some of you will notice things that are wrong about what I did, but I didn't. I just wrote from my memories, really, and um, then I hoped that my editor or my copy editor would catch whatever I did wrong. of an 
remember it, it was not easy for me to do you know maybe I I, I don't I, I sort of hope that I'll, I can and will write nonfiction but I think you're right I mean I think I, my go-to place is fiction so I probably was without knowing it using what I knew from that when I was right because I, I and I did notice when I was reading the exercise that a lot of it is I don't remember I don't remember I don't remember and so I was sort of stuck in that place of like, how can I write about something that I actually don't remember? Which to me made me go, oh, I'll just make it up. And I remember, I mean, I remember that it happened, but I don't remember specifics of it. So I don't know. I don't know, but I mean, the tools, I think the tools are very similar and maybe they're the same. I don't know. I don't know what it really means to have a novelist as opposed to, you know, a memoirist's eye. I'm not sure how different it is. In, yeah, in the back. That's actually a good story. Um, it wasn't my title originally. And we struggled with coming up with a title that would work. And uh, my editor, who's also here, typed into like I don't know, was it Google? I think uh, some kind of internet search, um, the word Ruby, and it came up that rubies in like ancient times were thought to be cures for grief, <laughs> which I had no idea about. And so we all were like, Oh my God, that's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> So that's how it came about, and I, I mean. Well, I, I, I mean, there, the cure is, in my opinion, the cure is to keep living and to, and that's there is no actual cure, but that is the cure. I don't know. I'm, I'm the man in the back. I, question of how do we cope with grief is maybe a little too large a question to bring up at this moment, but you, uh, for me, 
writing it was a large part of it, and uh, telling the story was a large part of my moving beyond the story, um, which was haunting is really not too strong a word. It was very much haunting me for a, a long time. And I think telling the story and you know getting it to be in a place that had, it was like its own home and I could remove it from myself and it had a shape and it was done um, was incredibly helpful for me. I mean, I'm a writer, so that's my thing. And I realize like a lot of people don't process that way, but I think we all have ways of processing that are similar to that in, in, in our own ways. And I think, I don't know, I mean, all the, the usual responses to that question. <laughs> So I want to thank um, all of you for coming, and of course, most of all, our speaker, Nellie Herman. Um, so I want to point out a couple of things, one of which is um, there's food and drink and interesting people to chat with. Um, the second of which is Marsha Hurst, the director of our master's program, is 
uh, here with us if people want to grab her to talk about the masters. And the last and most important is that um, our bookstore um, is here. Stalwart Sandra from our bookstore is here to um, sell books. And we thank her for her efforts every month to come and help us have books available. Thank you, Sandra. Um, and Nellie is willing to, yes? Stay here and chat more and sign some books. Thank you very, very much. We'll see you next time.